Welcome back to the Digital Orthopedics Podcast. My name is Stefano Bini, and I am your host for this new season, bringing you the best talks from the DocSF Experience 2021. Following the debut of Voices of DocSF in their last podcast, we took a technology turn to discuss sensors in orthopedics, and in particular, wearable sensors and how we process the data they put out. So the quantified self-movement is no longer considered a fringe concept. Patients and doctors, nurses, therapists, and scientists are looking to sensors to provide an accurate understanding of how patients are doing as they recover from injury or surgery. We're all hoping that such data, tied to AI and algorithms, will one day yield a holy grail, a predictive algorithm. Now, in this segment, I'll be joined again by Professor Fabrizio Billy, a medical engineer PhD from UCLA, and Nick Gillian, a PhD in computer science and senior data scientist at ATAP division at Google, the Advanced Technology and Products Division, as we dissect how wearable sensors work, what they tell us, and why we're having such a hard time using their data to predict outcomes. Welcome to the Sensors and Orthopedics segment of the Digital Orthopedics Podcast San Francisco. I am joined here today by Fabrizio Billi, a PhD in biomechanics at UCLA in the Department of Orthopedic Surgery, and Nicholas Gillian, also a PhD, but in computer science, working for Advanced Technology and Products, the ATAP division at Google. Welcome, gentlemen. Thank you. So great to be here. Thank you. Good to be here. We are really interested in what you have to say about sensors and orthopedics. I'm going to start here, which is sensors in the operating room, and we just don't have that many today. We're going to get more interesting sensors applied to our implants. They'll tell us if implants are loose or infected or what have you, but we're not there yet. It's coming. Where we are, though, is wearable sensors, and there's a huge number of these that have been brought into the market, and people are in the quantified self-movement are using them, and we're interested in using this data. But to better understand how to use data from sensors, we need to understand how they're made, what data they output, and how the data is is understood, which is where we're all about today. So I'm gonna speak a little bit about the sensors themselves. They're, the anatomy of a sensor, if you will, is as a chip, as a port, and as a communication platform. And multiple sensors can be grouped together to create your wearables, but there's other elements to it. But let's talk about these chips for a second. This is an accelerometer. It measures kinetic movement and translates it into digitally into direction and speed. There's a gyroscope, similar outcome, but it measures angular acceleration exclusively. There's a heart rate monitor. It beams infrared light into the tissues and can determine the SpO2 by looking at differentiation in absorption of between oxygenated blood and deoxygenated blood. It can also check, check your heart rate. There's a pedometer. It can measure where you're walking, but its position in the body impacts the output it has. There's a thermopile. It's a micron thick. It measures the infrared heat being put out by the body and translates that into a digital signal, which can be translated into temperature. There's a pressure transducer. It can measure loads created through the uh, device itself. There's an altimeter. It can measure a pressure differential as little as 0.016 bar, which is crazy little and allows, for example, your phone to tell whether or not you've gone up and down several stairs. And then around us, people are creating brand new and even more interesting and intricate sensors. For example, you may see flexible sensors woven into textiles through the, um, through the gaming industry or possibly through uh, some of the sports companies or even the military. All these sensors are be collecting data, and that data gets put through a mini computer called a microcontroller. These devices connect all the electronic components read the input data, process it, and write the output data. So you can already see that not only does the quality of the sensor upstream have an impact on the output, 
but so does this device, which is going to collect this information and actually process it. How good is the processor? How powerful is it? Impacts the output. And then these devices collect data from multiple sensors and put them together to derive an attribute. For example, bat speed on a bat, if you have two gyrometers, gyroscopes placed on the, in, at different angles on the bat, you can, take, you, can, you can measure the angle and the speed of attack. Once that data is collected, it also has to be transmitted to the cloud or to a phone, whether it's through Bluetooth or near field or some other way, and it has to have a secure layer applied to it, which also all of it may increase or decrease, or say, the ability to collect information. This information gets lost every time this gets transduced through these processes. So why do I mention all this? Because the massive amount of variation or potential for error through the process of collecting this information through sensors. The outputs are biased by patient selection, sensor selection, the sensor location. The output itself can be influenced by the way it's converted, the algorithm and the design of that algorithm, and the selection of the microprocessor. That is a one individual wearing two different uh, wearables may have different outputs for this reason. In the lab, what we learned last several years is that absolute data measures are not as predictive as longitudinal data. The sensor accuracy is not as important as its consistency. And the second by second data is better than aggregate data. With total knees, we were able to predict that their outcome was good or bad around 11 days, even if the outcome measure was six weeks. So there's lots we can do here, but there's lots we have to understand about the power of these sensors, but also their weaknesses. So Dr. Billy, <laughs> Fabrizio, please tell us a little bit about uh, how we're applying these in, in, in orthopedics today. And so uh, the first example is a smart drill, uh, which incorporates a torque sensor and can communicate uh, directly to the tablet. In this way, the surgeon can actually visualize the penetration of the cortical bone and stop before actually going into the intermedullar canal. So it's very useful. It gives information uh, about the penetration depth and also the quality of the bone. Another example here is the bone tag. The bone tag is a miniaturized sensor. You can see here is about the size of a SIM card. And it can measure pressure, it can measure position, it can measure temperature. So it gives information about adhesion and infection, and it can be fitted with any existing or future implants. Another example uh, is a, a track patch. Uh, this is an example of sensors that are used actually postoperatively and, uh, and during rehabilitation of the patient. It's a relatively simple concept. The sensor here, the, the, the pods contain an IMU and temperature sensor that check the temperature of the wound and, uh, and the data are presented online on a portal to the patient and to the surgeon. Similarly, but that solves a little bit of, of our problem in the clinic, which is time constraint, is another solution that involves the use of one sensor to establish and gather data about gait and, and motion of, of the patient, either in the clinic or in the rehab. Stefano mentioned the textile. We are witnessing uh, you know, huge uh, development in textile. You can see here um, sensor, discrete sensor embedded into this textile and connected. This kind of design will become replaced, will be replaced by completely integrated sensors that will disappear into the fabrics. And the other, obviously more common that uh, most of us are familiar with is the smartwatch, in, in this case, a Fitbit. What this uh, uh, two last example, uh, what this uh, allows the smart textile, the smartwatch, 
allow the possibility of monitoring patients uh, during daily activity. There is a catch in, in this uh, system and, and most of the system that we are currently using, which is that they don't allow access to the raw data. And, uh, and the data are actually compressed, are actually presented in, uh, in a very specific, with very specific algorithm. And so there is no possibility for us to access the data and elaborate future algorithm that will allow us uh, to build predictive algorithm that will allow us to, uh, have, to know where the patient is going to be in, uh, in the future. And on this, I think Nick will touch a little bit more, and I'll certainly pass the baton to him. Thank you. Thank you so much, Fabrizio, and for Stefano for a great overview of this space. So hi, I'm Nick Gillian. I lead the machine learning for uh, several machine learning projects at ATAP, which is an innovation lab at Google. And building on what's just being shown, I'm going to talk about how we can use machine learning to recognize complex motions with body-worn sensors and some of the work that we're doing in this space. So here's an example of one of the devices that the ATAP team has designed and built, which we call the Jacquard Tag. So this is used to power multiple products already in the market, and it's also used extensively for R&D, including motion-based analysis. So the Tag is essentially a self-contained device that features all the key components Stefano uh, highlighted earlier. So this includes an embedded processor, a rechargeable battery, Bluetooth to communicate with mobile devices in the cloud, an integrated inertial sensor. And most importantly, to bring this all together, we can run very powerful machine learning models directly on the tag itself. This enables us to recognize complex motion in real time without actually having to stream any sensor data off the device. So here's a quick example of a real product that uses the tag. This is the Adidas Gamer, which launched in March 2020 and was developed in close collaboration between Google, Adidas, and the EA Sports FIFA mobile team. The idea behind Gamer is that you can insert the Jacquard tag into a pair of Gamer insoles and go out and play soccer. While you do this, our ML models that run inside the tag detect your kicks, your motion, how fast you're sprinting, how far you've run, your top speed, and we can even estimate the speed of the ball as you kick it. Then your real-world play is synchronized with your virtual team in the EA FIFA mobile game. It's pretty cool. Um, and this is all powered by our ML algorithms that run directly in your shoe as you play. So this figure gives you an idea of just how interesting a machine learning problem this is. Unlike, say, normal running, where you would expect very nice, smooth, periodic signal over time, soccer motions are a lot more dynamic. So here, for example, this is just eight seconds worth of data. And you can see that the player moves from a stationary position on the left, they start to run, they break into a sprint, they kick the ball, and then they slow back down to a jog again, all in eight seconds. And most soccer games are around 90 minutes. So you can imagine how complex this space is. So for Gamer, we needed our ML models to be responsive enough to capture these complex motions and also work across a diverse range of players of varying ages and abilities. So to robustly detect these motions, we actually run multiple neural networks directly on the tag in real time inside the shoe. These models are highly optimized TensorFlow models. They run at low power with just a few kilobytes of, of memory. They're also smart enough to know when you're not playing soccer to save additional power. This allows a player to simply pop the tag in their shoe and then go play anytime they want without explicitly turning anything on. It should just work. 
So the reason these models can untangle such complex motions from noisy sensor data is really threefold. So the first is these models are inherently time series models. This means that they can look at a wider temporal context of the signal and take into account this when making local predictions. Second, our time series models directly learn to transform the input sensor stream directly to the predictions or the variables we're interested in. So for example, instead of estimating the skeleton pose of a user and then deriving from this the variability of a specific joint, like the knee or the hip, for instance, and then trying to correlate this with the patient recovery, we can actually have our models directly estimate the key outcome from the raw sensor data. This has multiple advantages. One is that it avoids errors with integration at each stage of the system that can be very challenging to recover at the final prediction stage. The third reason that these models can estimate such complex motions is because we run the machine learning models directly on the device. This means we do not lose information in the aggressive compression of the data that would be required to stream minutes or hours of sensor data to a mobile device or the cloud. Instead, the local machine learning models can run in real time with the full stream of, of high resolution sensor data, understand the complex uh, context of the motion, and then only stream secure predictions out to the cloud if and when they're meaningful. Of course, the tag doesn't have to be placed in the shoe. It can be placed anywhere on the body or in a different object to maximize the signal for a particular use case. So you can see that when we bring this all together, you have the intelligent ambient computation. It can be placed anywhere on the body. Combine it with low-cost, low-power integrated sensors that feed powerful on-device machine learning models. You can start to see that this opens up many exciting opportunities. And I'm sure you can imagine what impact this type of ambient intelligence can have across orthopedics. With that, let me pass back to Stefano. I'm really excited to hear your questions and the discussion. Thank you so much. Thank you, Nick, and thank you, Fabrizio, because I think this idea we presented is where status quo, where we're going, the potential for ambient computing in a peripheral sensor is pretty remarkable. So with that, we'll go to the questions, and thank you, gentlemen, for your amazing presentations. Well, I always, always learn so much every time I talk to you guys. Uh, Nick, Gillian, and Fabrizio Vili, amazing segments. I, I, as you know, obviously, I'm very, very interested in this thing. So let's talk a little bit about sensors, talk about sensors work and orthopedics. And so I want to start out with you, Nick. You were walking us through a very cutting-edge way of thinking about machine learning, not your mother's machine learning, so to speak. Uh, tell us a little bit about how we're having new machine learning. What kind of new machine learning is out there? What do we call it? What's the terminology for it? And how do you think it's going to impact healthcare? And how we Yeah, that's, that's a great healthcare? question. And I think um, in the last few years, we, we've seen a couple of big changes, which I think are going to have huge impact across the world, and particularly in, in healthcare. So really what those changes are, let me show you how they're 10 years ago, five years ago, and today, like what are the big changes in you know, 10 seconds? So 10 years ago, we used to take very complicated data. If you plotted it, it would all be on top of each other. And then we would use machine learning techniques like SVMs, random forests, k-means, and so forth to try and build these very complicated nonlinear decision boundaries. And it worked quite well, but it, it, was, it was hard to really make it work. Five years ago, deep learning came along. And what deep learning has been able to do is basically using these big deep networks, actually learn the feature representations to take this mangle of data, which is all on top of each other, and basically separate it out into nice clean classes so you can draw, draw a straight line between it 
and say, this is a dog, this is a cat and so forth. What's happened in the last few years is we've moved away from supervised deep learning into now these self-learning techniques where we can use unlabeled data to build very strong feature representations. And then on top of that, we can have a small amount of labeled data, which actually is automatically separated by these representations to take very complex signals and project them into a space where it's now much easier to solve uh, harder problems. And the key thing here is we can do it with unlabeled data, not labeled data. Because obviously in the medical domain, it's very difficult to get labeled samples for rare diseases or for some very specific injury and so forth, right? Um, so this is kind of phases in the last few years is how this space has been trans transitioning. Yeah, that's very yeah. interesting, if, if I can, because uh, data labeling has been uh, always a big, big trouble. Yeah. And it's been always at the basis of most of the AI bias, you know, and I'm sure Nick can tell a little bit more about this. So, you know, having uh, the possibility of working with unlabeled data and solving some issues that we are facing, it's, it's incredible. And let's talk about solving those questions through uh, representation of the data. So that's also an area that we talked about early this morning uh, with Dr. Walker's talk about he felt one of the big moves forward in the field of data was the ability to show that if represented in a certain way, like a graph or a bar, it becomes actionable. So Nick, let's talk a little bit about how, what were you seeing in the data representation field as you are working with these super complex data sets? Yeah, I think there's two aspects to that. One is just the amazing tools we now have in the cloud and you know, with all of these packages. And you know, there are many, many different ways to represent the same data set. And each of those representations, you can actually learn something different. So what you want to be able to do is have tools that actually allow you to very quickly take giant data sets and represent them in maybe three or four different canonical forms. And in maybe one of those forms, you're really going to see that you know, feature pop out that you know, might help you understand what is truly going on you know, for a patient, for example. I think the other key thing, uh, tying back to what I was saying before, is uh, being able to take the data and use these representation learning techniques to take very non-linear data sets and project them into some other subspace or transform the data will allow you to actually start to see these patterns much more clearly. I think when you combine those two things together, it's very powerful. And Fabrizio, you talked a little bit about the importance of uh, sensors and their role. Talk to me a little bit about this concept of sensor fusion and maybe talk about the we talked to Nick about the value of multiple sensors and how they can change the output. Right. So well, the concept is, uh, is fairly easily understandable. If you think about your body, right, your body is a realm of sensors, if you want, and they are dispersed and interconnected. And, uh, you know, we are going towards a reality here where we are going to wear multiple sensors and all these sensors will talk to each other. And that will give us the possibility of acquire data that right now we cannot acquire, but not only acquire them in a smart way, meaning that not all the time all these sensors will be awake. There will be a central sensor that will manage you know, peripheral sensors, and those sensors will give us the information at a certain point in time. And this will save data, computing time, will save power, and will give us the correct information at the right time. And uh, sensor fusion, you know, obviously we are going to see also transformation. You know, sensors will not, the architecture of sensor will change 
as we integrate more sensors, meaning that also the integration of sensors will change how the sensors are uh, developed. And, and that's because, you know, we won't need the sensors that, you know, it's, for example, in a shoes that does everything. And maybe we can have a sensor that does a specific thing, for example, feel only the pressure and then send the signal to another sensor that is connected to your heart rate or your blood oxygenation or something else, some other parameters. And that, you know, will produce a large amount of data. But with these techniques that we are now using today, you know, the techniques that Nick is expert on, we will, you know, these are not going to be all tangled data that we are not going to know what to do about it. This will going to be coming through a flow that is very well organized and uh, they're going to give us the power to analyze the data in a very efficient and very you know real time way so it's something that sometimes is not possible today right and you know of course you've given everybody a heart attack they don't want to get all this data right so nick uh, the data is coming Correct. across but it's being processed at the periphery it's been processed locally and uh, there's a difference, of course, between on-device computing and edge computing. Maybe we can mention that. But uh, I want to get to the point of the output from all these sensors. We're not going to get reams of data, right? What do you see happening as this evolves and this data is collected? Yeah, great question. I think one of the major benefits we're now starting to see as we're able to move the machine learning and these tech and more powerful um, algorithms closer to the sensors themselves is when you have the algorithms that are running locally, there, there's a couple of benefits. Uh, the, the biggest one is for most of the time, these sensors are sensing things which are not interesting, right? For most of the day, you know, you're, the sensor's not moving, right? For example. So if you can uh, immediately say that there's no signal of interest here, you can save so much power in the rest of the system because you don't have to propagate data down up to a server somewhere to basically say like, yeah, it's just noise, right? I think the other interesting thing here is from a privacy standpoint, if your data is not actually, if your raw sensor data is not leaving the device at all, that cuts down already so many opportunities for people to intercept the data later on down the stream. So, you know, it, it allows us to make use of the, the high fidelity sensor data to make the local insights as, as best as possible. And only when there's something interesting can we start to propagate that, you know, down through the chain. And that may not immediately go to a phone or to the cloud or something else. It may actually go maybe combine with some other sensor that is on a different part of your body, for example. You combine those insights together, fuse those, and then push those um, through the chains, for example. So I think there's a lot of exciting things that are coming now that we can actually move a lot more of this compute onto your body or into your shoe or on your wrist and so forth. And then combine that with the power of like edge computing servers and cloud computing servers to com look at holistic data sets and bigger data sets and temporal things over many weeks and years, for instance. It all comes together very nicely. It, it does. And we've seen it other parts of uh, other parts of the world as we know it. I mean, for example, I think there's 300 sensors or so in a car. We're not inundated with information. We just have a very simple dashboard. The car takes care of almost everything on its own. We're asked occasionally to dial up or dial down the throttle in the, in the car, and even that now is being automated. So the future vision for this data in input is actually to have that minimized, right? The, the goal that you guys are putting yourself in the, in the data science world and machine learning world is to really understand how to collect the information, make sense of it, I see how much of it we can automate. Now, to me, that, that is a future worth going to. It's also a future that looks a lot like what happened with 
the airline industry, what happened with banking. I am essentially taking over a lot of the functions as a consumer that the bank used to do or the airlines do. I'm now essentially an employee of United. So today, earlier, we talked a lot about the ability to empower patients to take care of themselves. And what I'm hearing you talk about is with Fabrizio's connected sensors and all this idea of effusing your senses around their body, collecting information. What Nick was talking about is taking information, uh, but managing it really locally and allowing it to feed back to the point where you know, it's, it's adjusting my insulin, just building my blood pressure medicine. It's giving me some information about my posture, uh, whatever else I need. I can manage. I can take on a lot of the functions that I'd normally have to call a hospital for. Is that is that the big vision that you're seeing, Nick, in, as this all plays out? Yeah, I think so. I think it's both giving, you know, a good example of giving the patient these insights of like actually being able to see their trends over the weekend. Actually have them make some, you know, correlation between maybe like, yeah, I actually did sleep really badly that night. And like, why is this weird thing in the graph like three days before? Is there something there? Maybe should I try and adjust my life a little bit better? But also then obviously giving this to expert doctors and maybe giving some automated feedback to, to the users. I think combining this all together is really interesting. I don't think we should strip away the, these insights and, and you know just make it all automated and just give the feedback to the user, right? I think getting them involved and getting actually getting them to understand this a little bit more and what these sensors are telling them without just bombarding them with raw sensor data is, is an interesting direction to take. Let's talk about the power of sensors that are placed. The multiple, the same sensor, two of them placed orthogonally to each other. How does that change the data that we can acquire from those. I hinted at it, but I'm curious what your perspective on it. Sure. Well, I think where this starts to get very powerful is when you don't necessarily have two of the same sensors that are orthogonal, but two very different sensors that are orthogonal. Okay, so, together, I'm sorry. Right? so they're basically each sensor has its own strength, as I think you were, you were highlighting earlier in, in, in your in your section of the presentation. Yeah. Right. So right. when you take two sensors which sense very different things and you use them together. You actually, you know, two and two plus equals five now in this case, right? Where you can now start to make insights about what may be happening in the context of, you know, the sensing space that you cannot make with each sensor independently. So I think when you start to combine these together and actually use these more advanced machine learning techniques to kind of even take those sensors and create almost a virtual sensor stream that comes out of this, a virtual sensor representation, you can start to infer things that you could not do with each sensor individually if you if you understand what i mean yeah so it to me you know it's uh, it will look more and more this sensor integration it will look more and more like our nervous system you know you have peripheral nervous system and central nervous system and all these sensors scattered around the body and you know and your brain is receiving all the data but it's actually presenting you only the ones that you are really interested in right and uh, the thing to me that is going to be also very interesting, because right now we are talking about mainly surveillance, right? What's going to happen? You know, can I see if the patient is, for example, falling, right? Or how is doing after surgery? But what's going to be very interesting, what AI and the work that Nick is, is doing right now will allow us is prediction. And so right there, he said, maybe you don't want to jump on your bike today. Something like that, right? Because you're not really in uh, in in good shape, and so that good enough shape, <laughs> <laughs> and that's going to change the whole relationship you have with these sensors and you know and the reality that you are in, right? So it's very exciting. So let's push back a little bit on the all-powerful AI, though. We had a lot of talks, or we heard from IBM 
Watson. We heard from several speakers looking at the application AI. And it looked like when it comes to discrete applications, AI is great. When it gets very complicated, as with cancer, which wound up being almost too complicated to really get to be effective at, and everybody will have their perspective on it, but that particular application for Watson wasn't their, their greatest moment. Are these too complicated, really? These, 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 this vision we just had, is that too complex to really expect to be able to build in the next 15, 20 years a central nervous system that's powered by sensors and peripheral and central? Nick, what's your perspective on that? Is that, yes, theoretically possible, but healthcare is so complicated. Medical conditions are complicated that it may not get there, or, oh yeah, we can do it. Yeah, um, I mean, my view on this is, AI is a tool. It's just one tool, right? It's not the tool, right? And I think at least the way I look at this, things that are interesting to me in this space is more, how do we use AI as a tool for doctors and for patients to help them make the right decisions and not just simply you know, tell them verbatim what to do, right? And hide all of the, the reasons of like, why, why are we making that prediction? Like, why are we telling you you shouldn't go out on your bike today, for example, right? Like actually being able to give them, like make them superhuman kind of kind of way or allow doctors, for example, you know, across, you know, 10,000 or 100,000 patients to start to spot these patterns and trends that they couldn't do by, you know, reaming through a lot of, you know, uh, raw data themselves, for example. So I think it's when you can take AI and you treat it as a tool, a very powerful tool, but not a system that we should just treat as a black box and say like, okay, you're not a doctor, just tell me what to do. And I'm just going to be the person that, you know, conveys that information to the patient. Like we should not do that, right? That's at least my personal view on this. Fabrizio, what are, you, what are your thoughts? No, I, I, I totally agree. You know, AI is a tool and it's a powerful tool. And uh, since we are in the exponential growth of AI, it will become more and more powerful. But in the end, it will remain a tool. And uh, the way we'll, we'll present data to doctors and patients will make this tool useful or not. So that's a fundamental change. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I think when you, when you, when you look at the, the holistic systems that are now coming across, right, where you can take, you know, the best of sensing, the best of local compute, the best of cloud compute, the best of these kind of visualization tools, uh, being able to connect the thread through this whole system end to end, you know, being able to do local predictions for a particular patient, but also look at, you know, the macro as well over many, many patients for, for doctors. Um, when you start to combine all of these tools together, it, it does really start to change um, the way that we've been processing this, you know, in the past. One last question about something that I found fascinating and sort of looking into it is this issue of synthetic data and its application to machine learning. Can you explain what synthetic data is, Nick, to our audience? Yeah, I think a great example of this would be in the AI space, for example, where you know for many, many years now, we've had lots of companies driving around with cameras and radar and so forth in cars, and they've built up these giant data sets of the real world, which are now powerful enough to start creating uh, virtual data sets that you can now start to you know, inject fake cars, for example, to come through and so forth, and, and really push the boundaries of what these algorithms can do. So uh, an, an easy example to understand this is, being able to take a data set which was recorded in the day and instantly make it turn into night, for example, just by applying you know, some machine learning techniques uh, to create this new virtual data. And then being able to see how your algorithms work in the dark, for instance. Um, or maybe you find that you don't have enough data in the dark and you can boost your data set this way. So this is a very interesting space because it allows us, for example, to estimate how things would work if you place sensors on the body in different places without actually going and running those experiments first. Yeah, the, the concept of synthetic data is going to completely revolutionize because 
the way to expand the data set that exists where you don't have it, like you said before at the beginning with like rare, rare diseases. Okay, so long as you have enough of them, you might be able to make it a uh, larger data set and then run the algorithm on it and have as accurate output as you would have had you had real data. Gentlemen, thank you so much for taking us down this path for the last okay. 15 minutes. It was really exciting and I'm sure there's lots more to come in this space. We may even do our own segment specifically on this later on DocSF365, so thank you both. On behalf of all of us at DocSF, the Digital Orthopedics Conference in San Francisco, thanks for listening and for joining our community. If you enjoyed the podcast, please consider leaving us a five-star review and tell your friends. If you're interested in joining our team, participating, or being interviewed on DocSF, please let us know. If not, please join the revolution and listen up for our next podcast. Thank you.